Good morning. <coughs> Excuse me. Good morning, Your Honor. May it please the Court. Uh, my name is Tim Purden. I represent Jade Mound, Ron Vanderwall, Evan Thompson, and Steve Willard, the plaintiff's appellants here <coughs> who lost family members or were seriously injured when a culvert running under the BIA Highway 3 on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota washed out in a pre-dawn rainstorm in June of 2019. This court should reverse the uh, decision of the district court below on the plaintiff's failure to warn claim, uh, specifically the failure to, by the BIA to warn of the known hidden hazard posed by the failing culvert. The reason that this court should overturn is that the two uh, Eighth Circuit cases cited by the court below, Walters versus United States and Demeray versus the Department of Interior, uh, they were cited by the court below as controlling that they are, in fact, distinguishable. Uh, you have to... I assume you have read our recent Alberti case. I have read Alberti. You've got to include that in the Anxious in the to talk. Yes, that's, that's a good point. I should include that. Anxious to talk about Alberti, yes. Um, uh, under the facts of this case, the specific facts of this case, the BIA's decision not to warn the public of this failing culvert uh, cannot be found, should not be found, to be grounded in social, economic, or political policy such that the discretionary function immunity exemption applies. The key here are the facts. The Supreme Court has held that these, uh, these discretionary function exemption cases are impossible to define with precision. That's the, that's the situation we find ourselves in. As a result, much of the jurisprudence here is heavily fact-driven. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the facts, but I want to highlight three or four key facts in this case. Now, how much, I, I, I'm interpreting your appeal as limited to the failure to warn. One thousand percent. We have abandoned the failure to main claim, maintain claim. Which um, apparently did not, does not appear from the district court's opinion to have been the focus there. But so, Correct. Uh, Correct. Uh, the, the court was not... Uh, uh, dealt a full deck on this issue, so to speak. On the failure to warn way. We certainly pled both. We certainly argued both. But I would concur with Your Honor that much of the, of the record and briefing below uh, was focused on the idea of whether or not the failure to maintain claim, um, whether or not there were regulations, you know, that, that mandated certain things to be taken care of. We're not, we've raised none of those on appeal. The BIA clearly knew, in, in 2014, five years before this incident, they knew this culvert was failing. And it was well, let me, I don't mean to cut you off, but to me there's a more fundamental question. And I know we're, we're dealing with the discretionary function exception here, but I, I'm, I'm having a little trouble almost on the proximate cause issue before we even get to that, because let's assume the BIA put a sign up five years before this failure sure. that said this culvert well, I don't know what the sign would say, first of all. Would it say, this culvert's in danger of washing out? Caution? I, I don't know what it would be. But if you've used that, if you've gone by that sign five years, is that going to give you any particular warning that it was washed out this night? Well, we certainly have signs. I'm gonna, first, I'm going to tell you what the sign should have said. We, we have signs that say, danger falling rocks. And people drive past them all the day, all the time. But it, they're still there. This sign should have said, danger washout potential. Caution and use caution in rainstorms, and such a sign. Uh, again, the the 
I didn't look at the Eighth Circuit pattern jury instructions for today, but I can tell you in my recollection, the North Dakota pattern jury instructions to a jury say that a warning given shall be presumed to be, have been followed. That that is, uh, so, so that I, I understand your question, but there is a, a, we do see other warnings in similar situations, and the law presumes that they're, that they're followed. So I'm going to skip ahead through the facts. I'm going to get to the meat here. We, 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 the question is whether or not a failure, a decision on whether or not to place a warning sign is grounded in social, economic, or political policy. For certain, there are such decisions that are made that are protected by the exemption. Right? Alberti is one of them. In Alberti, when you're designing a facade, when they designed the facade of the federal building in Des Moines, Iowa, they created a walkway that led to a man with limited vision injuring himself. And the Eighth Circuit held that, well, the, the, the government there, uh, the, G, the, the, the General Services Administration, weighed safety versus aesthetics. And, and that's the sort of discretionary function that can be found to be immune. And there are other cases like that, many of them involving national parks and signs. And we agree that if the national, you know, we, we agree that if the National Park Service decided not to put a sign on the edge of the Grand Canyon saying, danger, Grand Canyon, don't fall in, that as they weigh that versus the aesthetics of the view, that that's a legitimate policy determination that's protected by the exemption. Here, we don't have any of that. There's no aesthetic concern here. The sole policy that the government can point to, that, that it claims will makes this discretionary, is the de minimis cost of putting up the sign. That's it. There's no aesthetic consideration. There's no political consideration. It's a solely economic consideration, and it's limited to the de minimis cost of the, of the sign. Now, there's no evidence in this record that anybody at the BIA actually considered this, actually wondered how much a, cost was, a sign would cost. We, we're here on a motion to dismiss, but it was Rule 12b-1. Does the court have jurisdiction? So the court considered voluminous materials provided by the government um, to support its position of a discretionary uh, decision. Um, nowhere in that record is there anything about anybody at the BIA considering uh, the cost versus safety of these warning signs. As we've talked about, there are a lot of warning cases out there. Alberta, there's a lot of people falling at post offices and federal buildings. But there are only two cases, really, that I've identified that, that deal with the risk, the failure to warn a motorist of a roadway hazard. And of course, COPE is the case out of the DC circuit that we feel is most analogous to here. COPE also involved a known hidden danger, a worn bald spot on the, uh, the National Park Highway running through the Rock Creek Park in Washington, DC. The National Park Service, someone skidded out, there was an accident, there was a lawsuit. The National Park Service said, well, we're the National Park Service. There's an aesthetic versus safety uh, analysis here that's discretionary. And the D.C. Circuit said... I was going to ask you about COPE, but not in this context. Okay. In the context in which we have interpreted and applied COPE. Right. And Was it, that the focus in the district court? Did anyone argue that? I certainly, I, I believe I argued well, COPE to argue, the district court. Yeah, yeah, do what COPE did. But, <laughs> right. but that's not the way we... In, we right. interpreted you may very well be referring to the meter decision, Your Honor, which you authored. That's right. Uh, right. Okay. So, in how did how did the meter court distinguish cope? Uh, the meter court did two things. It said that cope is not binding because it's from the D.C. Circuit. Well, of course that's true, uh, and I would argue too that meter uh, was not a roadway hazard case. It was my recollection that's the Gavin Point. Uh, they removed the guardrails. The pickup went out of 
gear and rolled down and killed some poor fella. And, and there was no warning sign that the guardrail had been taken out. That guardrail had been removed for flood control uh, 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 measures. But Your Honor said two things. You said COPE is not controlling, and then you said our facts are different. And you related the facts about the Gavin's Point Dam just as I did. I would argue that our facts are different from meter. Yes, but see, that isn't the part of meter that I was talking about. Okay. I was talking about our facts are different in the next sentence. Appellants have not alleged or presented evidence to show the Corps had either adopted a safety policy or established priorities to guide the Corps' decision in maintaining the road and the facilities at the dam, and, and therefore they fail to rebut the presumption that the Corps' decision not to post warning signs was grounded in policy. Right. So there's That's, a... I don't, I don't see that the district court applied or that either side argues that here. The, the, the presumption, right? That's well, what no, you're getting at. No, no, no. The fact that the, the underlying facts that we say are required to, to even challenge the presumption. Well, we have no evidence. to show policy. There has to be a, the, the decision has to be grounded in you policy. Just, you just said, let me care. Yep. You just said, no, it's, there's no evidence anyone in the, in the BIA even considered right. this. That's not the task. No, right. The test is, did the BIA have a policy regarding warning here or in, in general on this yeah. road? So th there's no evidence in the record that they did. Yeah, and that's your burden to come up with. Well, th th there's a presumption. Well, that's, that's, that's matter. That's, that's our controlling law. The burden is clearly, and Metter's not the only key. I mean, right, right. I, I'm trying ones that you are trying to distinguish. Yeah, I'm trying to understand. You, you, the burden is, is on the part, party. Well, the, see, when I think of the burden here, I think of the, the, the discussion in these cases about presumption. Well, of course, this is most to dismiss. We, we didn't have any discovery here. It isn't which 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 lawyer is is the most articulate. Well, I, I hope not. <laughs> you're, you're doing very well. So, I, I would. I mean, I. I'm struggling a little bit. We're in a motion to dismiss. We didn't have any opportunity to do any discovery. We got to bring, they got to bring some stuff in because it's a jurisdictional thing. We haven't had a chance to have discovery here. So to say that we haven't met a burden. Good point. But now, now what, was, what was the district? Was, was, this, was this distinction even argued? We need discovery not to show all these terrible facts, but to, to probe the BIA's policy approaching yeah, I mean, we, warning. I, I certainly believe we briefed and argued below what dis why discovery would be efficient and he should, he should deny the motion. Yeah, no, yeah, no, that's not... Yeah, I, I, I mean... We need discovery gets... You know, get <laughs> well, that's, you get that a lot, right? That doesn't get you much... But, but I mean, what I would say here, Your Honor, and I, I would like to reserve some uh, substantial time for rebuttal, but I, I, would, I would just say this, that the... The Supreme Court has set up a two-step two process here. The first step is, like, is there a regulation directly on point? And if you don't follow it, that's not, you know, you can't, you're not immune, right? And then the second step is this one. Is it grounded in social, economic, or political policy, right? What the government's position in this case is, well, if we can tie it at all to the cost of the sign, the economic cost of the sign, even a de minimis cost, if we can tie it, to that, that's an economic policy, and we're immune. Well, that really does away completely with that second prong of analysis, because as Judge Colleton said in the Walters case in his dissent, and which many other courts have said in this context, 
everything the government does is subject to funding. So there has to be a set of cases out there where, uh, uh, where there is not immunity because all there is is funding. There's no aesthetic. There's no Grand Canyon sort of issue. Wait, wait, you said, so is there that universe of cases? Well, sure. Cope, Parrish, Boyd. Okay, Cope, I, I, Cope is the one we talked about. Boyd is the, uh, the swimmer. The rest would appear to be district court. All th so Parrish is district court. Cope, Boyd. I think it's George, which is the alligator case. I think that's a circuit court case. The, the, the National Park Service didn't know, warn of the known hidden dangers of alligators in the swimming pool. You know, I don't, I don't like oral argument, just the cases. I, 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 you know, that's not, that's not. I, don't, I don't either, but in this, in this context, because of the fact-driven nature, as I prepared for argument, I had to sit, had to sit down and read all these cases because... The Supreme Court says it's hot. It's impossible to define with precision. So we are left with this sort of factual analysis. And, and, and that's this type of warning case. Warning is different. And warning is different, and I think... Warning is, and, and you know, you, everybody, you all want to talk about, you know, is this a gravel road or is this a culvert and, and yeah, but, what, what's construction and what's maintenance and, right. and so forth. Warning is, is, is a completely different, in my view, a different set of... of a different inquiry. I I think and that matter con construing cope made an attempt to pick up on your point that yep. it can't just be de minimis cost can't can't get it done for the if, government. If you've got aesthetics in the view at the Grand Canyon, you're immune. If it's just the cost of the sign, I think that's a different case. I'd like to reserve, if I could, the last minute forty-five for rebuttal. Thank you. Mr. Dos Santos? May it please the court, Josh Dos Santos on behalf of the United States. Uh, Your Honor, just to pick up on the discussion that just took place, I, I think most of, many of the, the points have been discussed. Uh, I would just briefly note that- you speak up a little bit. Sorry. I don't know that the mic will do it. Uh, just to pick up on the, on the discussion. The question that, we just, that I just had with opposing counsel leads me to pose you this question. Why shouldn't we remand for a trial of whether the, um, the law of, whether COPE as, as construed in matter is satisfied here? Uh, because, Your Honor, the district court already considered the, this issue as, as a 12B1, where evidence is produced about what the policies were, uh, and the district court was entitled under the 12B1 standard uh, to assess that evidence. It wasn't required to defer to the complaint on that point. But it didn't address it. I don't know if it considered it or not. Oh, it, it, it did, Your Honor. Its, it's discussion on the failure to warn to me was, was um, plain vanilla at best. So, Your Honor, the, the district court judge discussed at length the policies that were at issue. So, in particular, this was the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe that was contracting with the... Warren, what besides de minimis cost was argued? So, in, in this case, is actually, it's not really about a, just a cost distinction. This is a case where the tribe, pursuant to its self-determination contract, had the discretion to decide how best to effectuate this very large replacement project. So what, what was happening was that the tribe uh, was assessing. What, 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 tell me where in the record I will find evidence regarding whether the BIA and or the tribe had a policy regarding warning signs on 
uh, these tribal ro these roads across uh, the, the tribal across the reservation. Uh, so, Your Honor, the the appendix contains all of the the documents that we that we um, I, have here and the documents. I know there are all kinds of documents because well, you were arguing about different things. I want to know the policy. Is there a policy document? We, the, the, the BIA requires the Indian tribes when they're in control to post adequate warning. There is no such, no such document. The, and let me, let me just read you a few, a few of the uh, points. If you look at uh, page 128 of the appendix, it's, that's, this is a relevant contract. Um, for, for the tribe, it says that the tribe shall exercise full discretion over the funds subject only to the provisions of this contract and federal law. There's a regulation that says that the tribe, this is a 25 CFR 900.5. Now, where's the evidence about the tribal policy? So the, these, are, these are the, we, we put forward under 12B1 the evidence about the fact that there is no such policy, that the tribe had full discretion here. Um, it's plaintiff's burden under this court's cases, like uh, Hurden, plaintiff has a burden to prove jurisdiction uh, under 12B1. And there is no, under the first part of the discretionary function test, there is no identified mandatory policy under this court's cases, for example, in CRS, that would specifically prescribe the course of conduct as to warnings. Uh, rather, the tribe was pursuant to the Indian Self-Determination Act, given policy discretion to decide how to implement this road maintenance program in accordance with its needs, uh, stretched out over 200 miles of roads in its reservation. And more particularly here, this was uh, the tribe's decision-making about how best to address maintenance at the Kennel Road culvert. Uh, as uh, opposing counsel has, has noted, plaintiffs no longer contest that so those decisions generally fall within the discretionary function exception but, under yeah, this court's cases. The, I think the point is, and this is, I assume the reason they aren't appealing the warning issue is, if the tribe has a limited amount of money and they decide to, that the culvert 15 miles away is in, is, needs repair sooner than the one that actually failed, that's a discretionary decision on how to use funds. I guess the question that, that Judge Logan's, I don't mean to speak for him, but I think he's asking, and what I'm concerned about is, but what if it's de minimis, to put up a sign? Is that, are you saying, is there any policy consideration here other than economic for their failure to make a warning? Uh, yes, Your Honor. So, so two points. One is the court's cases, but let me first address, you know, the, the, this case. Um, so the tribe here, as you noted, has 200 miles of roads. It had a list of 50 priorities, 50 projects that it, that it was undertaking. The record is undisputed that it did not have enough funds to undertake all of them. It needed to, for example, sometimes save money from one year to use the next year to allocate with others for larger projects. As to the Kennel Road culvert, the tribe uh, conducted assessments. It conducted an environmental assessment, an engineering assessment. It decided, uh, as between options like installing a slip liner versus replacing the whole thing, it was going to replace the whole thing. This is a very massive project. Well, I'm, so I'm it, pretty sure that if, if, this was, if this was a highway an accident on a state highway, um, at least in the Eighth Circuit or in Minnesota, there would be a negligence cause of action against the highway department. And um, it wouldn't be, sovereign immunity would not preclude it. And therefore, the, whether, the, whether the highway department had a policy to go out and make sure that to determine what, inter, what intersections or curves or whatnot 
may be hazardous in the post-appropriate warnings. That would be every bit, that would be discoverable. And its presence or absence might, might, not, might or might not be determinative. But, I mean, a 12B1 motion invites the court to hold evidentiary hearings on, on fact issues that are required to decide jurisdiction. And my suggestion is, why isn't this such, a, such an issue? Uh, well, number one, plaintiffs have not argued for that and did, did not, I don't believe, uh, request an evidentiary hearing. Or if they did, the district, the district court must have denied it. But I, I, I don't exactly know the particulars of that. But what is true under this court's case is that it is the, the plaintiff's burden to establish jurisdiction. Sir, I, I mean, you're talking too fast and too long. I'm oh, I'm sorry. So just to reiterate that it is the, the plaintiff's burden to, to establish jurisdiction. We have documents here establishing what the tribe was doing. And let me just point you, this, yeah, this court to the... But you keep talking about the decision not to replace the culvert. We're talking about the decision of whether to put up a sign. So, so let, me, let me just point the court to Metter, for example. So in Metter, the Army Corps of Engineers had decided to uh, conduct repairs along a shoreline, and it took off guardrails. It already had in place a policy about keeping up guardrails, which doesn't exist here, for example. Um, but it took them down, and it was deciding how to, how to best address the, the repairs. And this court said, in the context of that safety project, when you're undertaking a project like that, it is within the discretion of the Army Corps of Engineers to decide how best to address. This was just a dangerous road. No, it was, Your Honor. The, the tribe was undertaking replacement of the culvert. Well, it was. They weren't, you mean there were there were there were there was equipment out there? They so, hadn't done it for five years, and they weren't planning to do it. For they another they, five, right? They That's all the record shows. No, Your Honor, respectfully, no. The, the record shows that the tribe uh, had conducted assessments and then was securing funding from the BIA because it was such a massive project, they needed additional funds. Now, the, as the court explained in Metter... Yeah, uh, the, question, the, the question, policy question is, what do we do in the interim when we aren't doing pea turkey and there's no indication to the people crossing this, this culvert that it's hazardous? So, what should we as a tribe do to protect our, our constituents? And that is quintessentially a, a policy determination. No, it's not, not. No, first you have first you have to determine if it's dangerous. You ought to have a policy that we we pay attention to whether our roads are dangerous. Metter just says, cope required. You know that that the existence of the policy was significant in cope, and we weren't gonna we weren't gonna extend cope a lot further. And and so now 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 that. That the government's urging, our district courts are ignoring that. So, Your Honor, respectfully, we are not pressing any new point here. We are following a long line of cases that this court has held. You didn't follow well. Maybe, maybe I, neither neither side followed. Cope is construed in matter. So you, the, there should have, there should have been a a. a There probably should there should have been an ev rule twelve b one evidentiary hearing on the tribe's policy regarding warnings. Your Honor, the, the district court did follow this court's precedents very faithfully. Uh, what the court said in matter was that in Cope there had been already a policy to install particular warning signs about that danger slippery when wet signs, and it said that the government hadn't identified uh, what policy considerations would have. Entail, would have been entailed in different signs. And in matter, the court said uh, it, it wasn't, that wasn't relevant to the issue about whether to put up signs to begin with. Uh, that is exactly the case here. The plaintiff has not identified 
any mandatory policy, any policy at all about putting up warning signs at this culvert. As this court said in Buckley, this court has repeatedly held that decisions about whether to warn when they are grounded in assessments of the risk. Not very repeatedly. Oh, it is repeatedly, Your Honor. We had three cases and talked with any seriousness about warning as opposed to the typical. I respectfully disagree, Your Honor. There's Bacon, there's Hensley, there's Demery, which was thin ice. The case was about thin ice and failure to put up adequate warnings about the fact that the government was aerating a lake and people were riding snowmobiles in the area. And again, that was a hidden hazard, same types of arguments about de minimis costs. And the court said because the agency had to weigh what the cost would be, what the resource allocation would be against any benefit of the warning and analyze those various factors, the discretionary function exception applied. Then you have Metter. Then you have Buckley. Then you have this court's. Come on. I wrote one of them, at least one of them, and I was on the panel in another one, and I studied all of them in both of those cases. Well, then, Your Honor, I would just say that this court should just follow those precedents here. The Supreme Court has made clear that Congress in the discretionary function exception was intending to shield decisions that were susceptible to balancing of factors such as resource allocation, such as deciding. Has the Supreme Court ever discussed, has it ever addressed warning issues? I don't recall a case. I don't think so. I don't recall a case right now, but this court has many times, and the district court faithfully followed them. Unless this court has any further questions, I would just ask the court to affirm. Thank you very much. For rebuttal. Your Honors, Demery, Walters, and Alberti do not require the dismissal of every failure to warn claim brought under the Federal Tort Claims Act. Where the United States government, the BIA here, the BIA is responsible here, has knowledge of the severe hidden hazards of a failing culvert and fails to issue any warning to the public, they should not be able to avail themselves of the discretionary function exception immunity simply by invoking an attenuated connection to general funding. That's all we have here is the diminishment cost of the sign. The cases that find immunity for failure to warn, they're all, when they get to the discussion of what is grounded in social, economic, or political policy, you have the aesthetics cases. Those are cases where the policy is grounded. It's not a case where the policy considerations are simply lurking in the background as they are in a de minimis cost of a sign case. And I think that as you try and synthesize these cases in this fact-specific area of law, wherever you draw that line, if you include immunity for de minimis decisions about warning signs, you're immunizing everything the government does in the warning space because everything they do is dependent on... The trouble is, buying your argument, your argument is a very threshold argument because if you really get down to this question on an evidentiary record, if a warning, what warning? And how would it have mattered? And what would it have cost? And how much periodic 
review of the situation from a warning standpoint would have been required. It wouldn't have been de minimis pennies. If I could respond, Your Honor, my time, yeah. I welcome the opportunity. Given the loss of life and the injuries to my client in this case, I think that I welcome the opportunity to try and make that record. We haven't had a chance yet, and the government hasn't come forward with that evidence. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, counsel. The case has been well briefed and argued. I think the argument has been helpful. We'll take it under advisement.